0: Hi everyone, welcome back to What's Killing My Kale. This is season three, and it's our special mini-series about how climate change is impacting fruit and vegetable farmers in Minnesota. This podcast is co-hosted by Natalie Hoidel and Annie Claude. We are both statewide extension educators working with fruit and vegetable production. So in the last couple episodes, we heard from Kenny Blumenfeld, climatologist, about the projected impacts of climate change in Minnesota And then we talked to Laura Frerichs from Loon Organics Farm. In this episode, we interviewed Aaron Johnson and Ben Doherty from Open Hands Farm in Northfield. Aaron and Ben are two of the most thoughtful farmers that I know, and so I was so excited when they said that they wanted to record this podcast with us. They have been really intentional about disease management. They haven't been afraid to think really big solutions to climate change and water management on their farm. And so I'm really excited that all of you, our listeners, get to hear from them.
1: So I'm Erin Johnson, Ben Doherty, and we have been running Open Hands Farm since 2006. Um, we started out very small, about four acres, and now we're um, 17 acres cultivated or so. Or so. veggies, um, and th- then more, um, also cover crops too. Um, and we um, currently have 180 member CSA, and then that's about a third of our business and we do two thirds wholesale, um, mostly fall and winter roots and leafy greens. Thank
0: you. Did you start out as a CSA and move more towards wholesale, or has that always been part of the operation? We originally thought
1: we'd just be a CSA, but then we started selling to Saint Olaf College from Bon Appetit, and um, that really was a wonderful fit for um, CSA. So we could grow extra for the CSA, and then have what was left over, or if we had a good year, we could wholesale that. And then we just loved wholesale, so we've it's been expanding mm-hmm. that over the last fifteen years, fourteen years. Great.
2: Okay. We so, started out doing a few farmers markets too, but quickly realized that with our on farm CSA pickup we were making more money and life was a lot simpler if we just stayed here and did the CSA on the farm. So the on-farm CSA and the wholesale just turned out to be a really good fit financially and community-wise. Okay. Yeah. And the wholesale really has enabled us to take advantage of a little bit of some of economies of scale and specialization that we, the CSA would have to be so much bigger in order to advantage, take advantage of. So.
0: Does that mostly translate into like Pack shed, equipment. Like, what other ways have you? Has that allowed you to harvest and packing?
2: I think okay. mostly. Um, yeah, and storage. You know, so many of our vegetables go into bins now, even if they're just getting washed the same day, or if they're going to be stacked seven high and stored and forklift. So, yeah, those. The, yeah, we lift a lot less mm-hmm. <laughs> now, which is really good.
0: So you've been here for fifteen years. What, in what ways have you noticed the impacts of climate change? Like, what does that look like on your farm?
2: More rain, more than anything else.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, in the beginning, maybe four or five years, it was a lot hotter and drier.
2: And windier. And Um, more insects.
1: Yeah, and that's what we we learned that Mm. from farmers that have been here for a long time. They were saying that was the changes. But since, I don't know, 2011 or 12, not sure exactly, it's been a lot more rain, and it's been trending Mm. towards cooler. in the first few years we had some of the very severe storms here. We've been fortunate enough not to have that.
2: Like softball size hail. Yeah. In August
1: twenty sixth, our first year. Our first year. In the second year we had two hail storms. Smaller, smaller size hail, but longer duration, so it actually was a little bit more damaging than softball size hail even. Not going to win. We haven't had that since those first two years. Um, but we've had just you know a lot more rain. So and then earlier fall went cold too, which has been affecting mm-hmm. things.
2: Yeah, so those years of the hail, it felt like whatever what we were hearing from everybody around us, and what we were certainly seemed weird to us, was how intense the storms were and how infrequent they were. Where people, you know, so many people were saying you'd get roughly an inch a week, you know, up until maybe the year 2000 um, throughout the growing season, that wasn't happening. There were longer, hotter, dry spells, not a drought, but longer, hotter, dry spells where you would need irrigation if you wanted vegetables to really thrive. Um, and then when it did rain, it just came with such vengeance. So the hard, more rain and harder pounding, that kind of started when we were, it, we when we started farming, that was what we got used to right away. Um, but it's, now it's raining, heavy, pounding, and frequent. And like every four days, like everybody's been saying about this year, you, just when it dries out enough to go do something and you're like, oh, I should wait another day before I go out in the field, it's going to pour again tomorrow. So you got to do it the day before.
0: Um, So when you said, like, that was the way that you got used to farming, Mm -hmm. like, that's the way you started out, do you feel like you, as a result of that, like, have any certain practices or ways of thinking about farming that maybe someone who wasn't used to that, who had been farming in a period where they didn't have really intense rainfalls like that, Mm -hmm. maybe wouldn't have, or maybe it would have taken longer to figure out or they would have had to change something?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of things we do because we've been beaten by rain and hail so much.
1: <laughs> and, and more disease and not just insect pressure, but disease pressure. I mean, so for example, we learned how to farm out in western Massachusetts and we worked at Food Bank Farm for four years. And they also, after we moved here, started having more climate change issues. So now they have a lot more rain. But when we were there there's hardly any disease, there's hardly any pests, we didn't have to worry about rain issues, you know. So we, that's how we learned how to farm. We came here and it was like harsh reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you have to kind of stay on your toes all the time about learning new different things. Um,
0: so what are some of those things that you do differently as a result of that?
2: Yeah, some of those are, you know, how, how we manage water on the farm, you know, in terms of waterways and grassy strips or pollinator strips um and some of that's you know starts with choosing resistant varieties and building healthy soil and then should we go into more of that sure you know, there's it's a long list <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so yeah i mean i guess we've first and foremost always focused on like building healthy soil because that's just what we were taught as organic growers if that was the key if you want healthy plants you need to have healthy soil and you need to feed it in order to have healthy soil um, and so we have taken that to heart and taken the advice of our mentors of needing to soil test and add compost and add calcium and then follow up and deal with all the other nutrients as well um, and so we've um, that's always just been an important part of how we grow um, is compost and minerals um, and cover I mean I, t- I take cover cropping for granted sometimes we're always cover cropping every every vegetable fields getting a cover crop after it's harvested and often before
1: and then we also try to take every piece of the field out for after three or four years of having vegetables in it to for a year into cover crops
2: soil building cover, cover crops because so many long-term organic farmers told us that'll really help your yields and your price control um, to have those fallow years, those off years. So uh, we didn't have enough land, and we were just using every bit of land we had for the first few years, but as we grew and we were able to acquire more land, uh, uh, we've been able to start resting pieces periodically. like that.
0: What was your process of figuring out which cover crops work best for you in this location and with your soil?
2: Just long and trial and error.
0: Yeah, I mean we we were taught. Michael
1: always loved to just do lots of diversity in cover crops, so just throw everything in. Um, so there's that, and then there's just winter holding soil, and then one thing that we've really started doing a lot is putting sorghum and sudangrass, which is for thistle management, really, um, and also it builds the soil really well too. So it's not related to climate change or rain, but. But that's anyway.
2: our that's our our go to summer cover crop when a crop comes out and it's early enough to plant sorghum and not too late for it we'll we'll do it and um, mm-hmm. because we get some thistle management because we were for a few years thistle was spreading you know and everything else we tried didn't work we tried a lot of things without spraying um and it's also what we do in a in a fallow year is the mowing a mixture of of sorghum and that what else we put in with the sorghum changes you know usually there's buckwheat because we love buckwheat for the insect um insect communities that that attracts um and we're still playing with that mix and what to have in there as a legume and what handles the mowing well underneath the we've talked about this what handles the mowing well underneath the sorghum canopy and um, we're still experimenting with that um a lot of the other ground, and going into winter, we've we've gone to winter wheat, and everybody always says winter rye, winter rye is, is what everybody uses and what everybody should be using. But we've struggled with rye over the years at different times, just trying to kill it, especially in wetter years. Rye gets really hard to kill um, mechanically. Um, so we've really pulled back on the amount of rye we use, and so as as long as we can plant winter wheat into the fall, we will, because we get a similar amount of biomass and i'll come back to that in a sec but by the we'll get a similar amount of biomass but it kills a lot easier with with tillage um and by biomass i mean you know most of our cover a rye cover crop we're going to want to till it in by the time it's 12 inches or so and a wheat crop gets pretty much the same size in about the same time you get huge amounts of biomass on rye if you let it get big but then it's impossible to deal with are extremely difficult so we just haven't found that much benefit for rye there's the benefit that it'll Germinate when it's really cold. So being having focused on late root crops, now we're ending up using more rye than we did even like four or five years ago. But because it's getting so cold so quick after we harvest roots, um, that land often goes into rye. And some years doesn't germinate till the spring, and it's a bad year out of five when it doesn't germinate at all. You know, um, but at least it's something. Um, so the wheat, and the rye, wheat most of the time going into the winter, rye when it's too late sorghum of mixture later and harvest it's been fun too to harvest some of that ourselves we have an old crappy mine it's really fun <laughs> okay. um so we can harvest some of that seed because the cost of those seeds has gone up because it's wetter and fewer people are growing small grains partially because it's harder to grow them and get a reliable harvest and make any money on them so the cost has gone up so that makes using older smaller equipment still makes sense for us it's kind of a side thing. Mm-hmm.
0: For harvesting those. So one of the thing another strategy that you mentioned was putting in like perennial strips, mm-hmm. um, grassy areas. Mm-hmm. So if that was something that a beginning farmer were interested in doing, what mm-hmm. would be some of your recommendations in terms of like who to talk to, resources available, mm-hmm. kind of where you chose to put those and why?
1: Yeah, so we were able to get—I can't remember all the details now—but we were able to work with NRCS and gave us money for um, planting and and the the labor of um, prepping everything for the strips and the—I think it was money for the seeds—and they um, also had us making a plan um, so that we worked with Xerxes to do that. So we were able to work with um, some folks from Xerxes. And they really helped us every step of the way, both NRCS and Xerxes Society, it was, was really amazing. Um, and I think most all of it was paid for by either Xerxes because they were doing some trial fields and plantings and NRCS too. So NRCS is the place to start for sure. Um, and they're really, really, really helpful, great.
2: Yeah, I'd say when the NRCS Equip funding came out for pollinator funding, was it five years ago, 2012 or something like that? For years, we had always tried to have... It was a real game-changer, because for years, we had always tried to have plants in bloom non-vegetables, non-crops, and bloom somewhere on the farm throughout the year. And as our farm grew, you know, at first, as our farm grew, it became harder to figure out what those were and where they were. You know, We always had a little flower section for our CSA, and, and then we'd have a field of buckwheat or two, and so that was enough. But as we grew an acreage, like, well, what about this five acres over here? How's that getting that benefit and so we were really struggling with how to how to do that how to make that happen and we didn't have the native plant knowledge to do that um, and so when the nrcs equip funding and the Xerxes partnership and support came out it was really perfect timing for us and the, the knowledge that we needed mm-hmm. and the money that was really helpful because it's not free or really cheap um, but it's super beneficial
1: yeah. And the so. other part of it, which is great timing for us is because we'd had some pretty serious flooding issues uh, I can't remember maybe 2011 or 12, where we get six or seven inches of rain within 24 hours um, and we our farm drains 80 acres you know we are for drainage for 80 acres of other people's farms So we were working with NRCS to put in the WASCA, the detention basin, And um, But then we were also looking at our farm and where could we put waterways where the water already runs um, and funnel that through our insectary strips. So we're kind of using that land for two reasons, for waterways and then also to have the pollinator um, benefit. And so we were able to kind of do both at the same time, which is really helpful. And then we also built some berms over here to kind of keep water into a field Um, um, instead of having more erosion down there. And that we're working on putting insectary strips into. Um, Yeah, so the amount of erosion
2: and runoff and ponding or flooding that we have now is nothing compared to what it used to be. And we've always struggled with tillage, the fact that we're really wedded to tillage bound with it, like I do. I wish there was a good organic no-till solution for vegetables, but we, talking to everybody and dabbling in a couple small experiments with ourselves, we feel kind of stuck with it at least for now. Love to see that change in our lifetime, um, but with the amount of tillage and the erosion that comes with it, um, and when those heavy rains kept becoming more frequent, then it hurt even more. You know, just the amount of good soil we were losing, the crop damage we were having. Um, became unacceptable so the so the berms and the waterways in in various forms in different places around the farm have um, helped a huge amount Mm -hmm. so that we don't lose nearly as much soil or have nearly as much crop damage we're fortunate too that our soils drain really quick so when a field of ours goes underwater which hasn't happened for a long time now when it even when there's a puddle or a pond in there less than 24 hours it's gone Mm -hmm. Um, so we're really fortunate that way
0: Have you noticed any, like, secondary benefits? Like, maybe it's hard to say whether one specific thing is making a difference, but, like, has that, by, like, having better drainage, getting water off the fields, have you seen any impacts to, like, disease management? Or by having those strips of flowering vegetation, are you seeing more, like, natural enemy kind of insects? you can't like say exactly that that's what caused that that's fine but
2: well i think we are seeing less crop damage like i said to from the heavy rainfall events because of the insectary strips and waterways and burns and what we've always seen is that when one or two plants in a row get sick it's not long before that's where it starts to radiate from Mm -hmm. so often depends on the exact disease and the crop Mm -hmm. and the situation but you know, that's so we've also, we also go out and we'll, we'll rip out tomato plants or broccoli plants or whatever. It's, we've seen enough of that radiating out and spreading to know that that's worthwhile to mm-hmm. do. So I think there's less of that damage from erosion and, gull- and you know, gullying and, and and ponding because we have less of all those things now. I
1: would definitely say we have more insects on the farm mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a wider variety, yeah, wider more species. consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish we could have done a baseline before and after. Yeah. An inventory of
2: our yeah. native insects. Yeah. It would have been really nice to have an inventory before we started the native plantings because mm-hmm. we have we had, we had, we had a lot sure. I and mean, we'd see it all the time. Yeah, the time. we
1: benefit from um, the person who we bought the farm from. She had a lot of perennials, and so we've always benefited from the flowers that the you know the trees or bushes that she's had on the land. But just we added so much more, so it's just you it can definitely tell there's more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So in addition to um, kind of water management um, through perennial vegetation strips, are you doing anything with like race beds or tarping fields or other ways to be able to get into the field earlier in the season? Or has that kind of been enough for you to be able to do what yeah. you need to do?
1: Yeah, like we said, we are lucky that our soil oh. drains really okay. well. So we really haven't had that trouble. We haven't changed any other things. Mm-mm. I mean, nice. one thing I've changed well, yeah. go ahead. is,
2: but is just a little tillage tactic. Is that, you know, say I have a six inch wheat or a six inch rye or a 10 inch, and there's rain in the forecast, but I'm not ready to plow that field yet, or it's even too wet to, to plow, I'll go through and disk it mm-hmm. um, in anticipation of plowing it in two weeks. When mechanically, if it was going to be dry, I wouldn't need to disc it, mm-hmm. but it'll help it dry out faster, both before the next rain event and after in, ensuing rain mm-hmm. events. So that's one little strategy we've done. But yeah,
1: I guess the other thing, too, is since we, as we've gotten our rotation blocks down better, we know, in general, kind of, know, um, in theory, we know mm-hmm. what will be <laughs> spring crops the next year, so we don't plant rye or winter wheat and those we plant oats so winter kills okay. so then you have the bare soil which dries out quicker in the spring.
2: So. Not bare soil. Um, yeah.
1: But, um, More bare. <laughs> yeah. Darker. Yeah. It dries out quicker. Not as covered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing about uh, disease management
0: how do you talk to your employees or people visiting the farm about how to not spread disease from one area to another because i know you specifically told me when i was out
1: don't walk in this area after you've walked in this area mm-hmm. yeah so um you know in particular we don't for up uh, for people off the farm we only so our csa members can only pick in the youth pick crop area so no one's allowed in the other fields so our employees and us um, For every single crop, we um, always move from the youngest crops to the oldest crop in that succession. So, anything that's planted most recent, if we're weeding, we start with that, or harvesting, or cultivating, or anything. We start with that, the youngest crop, and then move down to the oldest crop because the youngest crop would have the least disease, you know, possibilities, and the oldest crop might have disease. So, that's something if we're ever like in a black rot area, weeding one day and we ask everyone, our employees to change their shoes and their clothes or sanitize their shoes and change their clothes for the next day so we're not going back into the same area with the disease crop clothes. Or there into
2: maybe. a different crop with yeah. those with those disease carrying
1: shoes, especially mm-hmm. um, and clothes. And so we have
2: sanitizer available
1: for people to do that between. Yeah between things and we structure our days to you know if, well if we also make sure to be only in those crops when it's dry out but we structure our days if we know we have to um do weed the brassicas um like the brussels sprouts we make sure that happens at the end of the day and we you know we have to weed a first succession of broccoli earlier in the day so it's just it's kind of always on our mind and for harvest um i i'm pretty much the only one in broccoli and cauliflower and then we have another employee who only does kale and we never trade so that person that does kale rarely ever goes into any black rot um other black rot crops
2: any other brassicas
1: period any other brassicas Mm -hmm. period so we kind of always have that on our mind for picking tomatoes lettuce weeding lettuce everything harvesting lettuce harvesting lettuce same things
2: And, of course, sometimes that flip-flops, too, if a younger planting happens to be sicker than an older planting. Right. So we're always constantly talking about, well, where should we start? Where should we go? Where should we not go after we've been there? Um, So we might do an older, healthier planting before a younger planting, if that younger planting already has a disease or any symptoms.
0: You were also talking about, like, if there's a specific plant or specific area where plants are really diseased you'll just go in and take those out do you have like a a monitoring process like i guess how are you scouting for diseased plants are you just kind of constantly on the lookout or is there like one person who's on the lookout is everybody trained to look for specific diseases that you know that you get every year Mm
1: -hmm. yeah i mean i think we're always in the gut and we definitely have employees that are on the lookout, too, I would say. I'd say most
2: of us are yeah. always looking, and, and, I, and, and I think we ask people to tell us if you see something weird or funny or sick or ugly, mm-hmm. tell us, sure. you know? or if you see a bug, if you see this particular bug that looks like this, tell us, we mm-hmm. haven't seen it yet this year and we want to know. Um, and so um, we want to catch the first 10 that arrive. <laughs> um,
1: yeah. And how is climate change impacting how you select varieties? Or is it at all? Very much so. Yeah, we're definitely looking, looking for, you know, in the big crops where you have more disease, we're looking for the disease-resistant varieties. So for cabbage, for instance, we used to grow all these different varieties of cabbage. We are only growing um, the ones that are more black-rot-resistant mm-hmm. varieties now. I think we've got down to all that. Almost. Mm-hmm. True. Yeah. yeah. yeah so it's decreased our, um, you know, our the amount of varieties we grow, which is unfortunate for just, you know, Just having more our eggs and not in one basket, but also we've really with the cabbage we've really noticed a big difference by doing that. And the resistance, is that something that you discovered through trialing on your own farm? Or did the seed companies give information that they were more resistant? Cornell's done a bunch of research on it and so we generally go there.
2: Yeah, we that's where it's all come from actually. Yeah. 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 Seed companies and the and universities. Yeah. That's, that research is so important. Mm-hmm. I can't say yeah. enough about how much that Somehow. can help us you know, to have variety testing, variety improvement, breeding um, can have a huge impact on how well we all can do our jobs. Yeah. Um, and I think we feel sort of vulnerable, vulnerable in that, particularly being dependent on certain hybrids to produce in these conditions you know their own you know i'm looking for a cantaloupe right now we have one cantaloupe that's done so well in our conditions and i can't find it untreated right now you know um, i'll be looking i have to make a few phone calls um and it wasn't a variety that was bred for organic conditions but we've just discovered we've tried so many different ones and it does so well um so we feel vulnerable in that sense not having control of our seed supply that way so i'd, I'd love for universities to have more skin in the game and more impact on all that, on the breeding uh, and the selection and improvement.
0: I also wonder if that's something where there could be some sort of collective pressure, like if you could get 15 farmers that all want the same cantaloupe yeah. to just call the seed company. <laughs> please give this to us untreated. Maybe <laughs> yeah. we could just solicit some people
2: the call. <laughs> yeah, that's the
0: call for you. Yeah. A- I'm doing a pepper variety thing right now mm-hmm. and just calling the seed companies and saying, hey, I'm really interested in these varieties. What do you have untreated? Um, and the guy I talked to was like almost surprised that I was asking but was really like open to talking about it. And so I think sometimes like we feel like we can't ask those, like what we see in the catalog is all that's mm. there and sometimes there's maybe like more potential to, if not this year, like convince them to mm. do something a little bit different next year if you can mm-hmm. show that there's an interest.
2: Right, yeah, to convince them to leave even just a 100,000 seeds untreated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. That there's those of us who are interested in that. And that's part of what they said to us last year when there was one variety of cabbage that we wanted to try but couldn't find untreated. Well, they asked how much it was, and they said, oh, we're not going to do it for 10,000 seeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But So then, if I can find somebody else who might, or get Johnny's yeah. to commit to buying 100 or a million seeds or whatever, yeah. and tell them that it works really well, and I think you'll enjoy it, you'll like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I would love for us, you know, seed saving and breeding on-farm and open-pollinated seed is something that I would love to make more progress with. And we just haven't been able to put the time into it. And now with all these diseases and the level of disease pressure and rain stress, it seems even harder to breed productive varieties on-farm for those conditions. And especially, you know, we already have, we're already at a disadvantage in seed production because of humidity and rainfall to begin with and disease pressure. And now we're just getting more of those things. So it just makes the local seed production even harder. But it would... You know, if we had the time, I'd still be a little I'm not totally confident that it going to work, you know, that we're going to end up ha- producing reliable seeds that were going to give us the yields that we've gotten used to from the big three companies, the big three seed companies, yep. who have done a really good job with some of the disease resistance and and, and good qualities.
1: So. Yeah, and I mean, they're also really stepping up from, for example, high mowing. I, I don't know if it's just high mowing, but on their cover, they, you know, highlighted... Uh, downy mildew resistant basil. Um, mm-hmm. it's a it's a whole field of basil and, and they and, and them and Johnny's have three new varieties for downy mildew resistant basil, which is really exciting because we are all just relying on this one variety um, for basil for the last few years. and so now we have some more choices. So it's good you know, I think in the future it's as these diseases are, take hold more
0: though hopefully the breeders will
1: keep on stepping up for helping us with that.
0: So one thing I, I'm i interested in exploring is I think when we've been talking about climate change, we've all been kind of talking about it's getting wetter and that's what we have to adapt to. Um, but one piece of climate change is it's uncertain. And <laughs> I think also right. the more that I'm reading, the more I'm seeing like there might be more water, but also if we have more heat and like there are fluctuations in when that precipitation is happening, like we may be dealing with Flooding stress at the beginning of the season and drought stress in the middle of the season. Mm-hmm. I guess, do you have thoughts about that? Is that something you've experienced at all? Where like you have some unexpected, like almost drought-like periods later in the summer, or the patterns are
1: way longer. You know, before it was the week, like
2: in the sense of weeks and months. Weeks
1: and months. Yeah. You know, maybe it's raining for a day or two, mm-hmm. and now it tends to rain for. You know, more, many more days, or it's colder for longer, and they don't come and go as fast. It seems to just stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yes, I can see how that could be if we do get in a dry spell of problem. but in our location, we have not had that.
2: Okay. I'd say roughly 2006 to 2009 Yeah, was kind of one weather. Pattern: the longer dry spells, super intense hot. storms, hail, very hot, ninety mm-hmm. plus degrees, thirty plus mile an hour winds for days or weeks on end. And around two thousand nine, two thousand ten, that shifted, mm-hmm. and it was a lot mellower. Those years were a little bit mellower, but we also started seeing more disease. There were, I think, there were hot and humid spells mm-hmm. that lasted weeks on end, with or without rain. That wasn't marked by that necessarily. Um, and then we got into this the last four or five years that we've had, and a lot of this region has had, of the very intense, very frequent rains. Um, and I've had, you know, somebody, you know, a neighbor asked, How are you feeling about all this rain? Or, Oh, I'm ready for this rain next week. This was last year, 2018. And I said, and I think it was August 10th. I said, You know, I kind of would rather it didn't rain till November 15th, you know, <laughs> at this point. And she looked at me, What do you mean? And I thought, Well, so much of what we do at that point in the year, I'd love to have some dryness, you know? So, but what we learned from our first four or five years was that we needed to have adequate irrigation for any acreage we were farming. Like it just wasn't worth trying to germinate or helps new transplants survive or get them through flowering or, or fruit set or fruit um, production or sizing up the roots. Like we needed irrigation to be able to meet needs, the special needs at any of those time periods. So you have and,
0: your whole farm irrigated,
2: yeah. Like
0: regardless, of I'd say it's the barely enough.
2: The size well we have is barely enough for the acres we're doing. Okay. We can get away with it, um, but it's if we're having a important. drought, it might be tricky. Yeah, we yeah. do. We'd have to work. We'd have to work more nights <laughs> if it was a serious drought. Yeah. Um, but we could do it, um, and if we, so, if we got into a four or five year drought period, or when there was like more, even if there was heavy rains in between, but month long dry periods we'd be looking at a bigger well. Mm -hmm. We don't want to, but I'd want to sleep. (laughs) So yeah, for me, I'm fully aware this is the pattern we're in, and it could change change for sure. Um, And so we need to be adaptable and ready Mm -hmm. and have the infrastructure and techniques to handle whatever comes.
1: Which is partly why, when in our expansion in 2015, why we moved more towards winter root or root crops, mm-hmm. um, because they, in general, can withstand stronger storms, drought, rain. You know, they can just withstand a little bit more than tomatoes can. Or we've kind of moved away from some of those crops that are just a little bit more finicky with temperature and storms. Fruit and crops, fruit and, and crops, leafy crops, yeah.
2: basically underground. They're a little safer.
1: Of course, anything can happen with fruit crops still, but
0: it, there's a little bit more security in that. You were but also mentioning with the shorter falls, like kind of having a little bit more of a crunch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you, I guess, what are ways that you're thinking about that if you're anticipating a shorter fall? Like maybe what are you going to do next year to maybe give yourself a little bit more of a cushion or mm-hmm. anticipate that?
2: I think we shifted some of our wholesale sales to summer okay. to try to take some of the risk and burden off of fall. Um, but we're also just prepared every year we've been bumping up our rough target harvest date for our, like finishing all of our root crops. We've been bumping it up a week or two
1: every year for a couple of years. Okay.
0: So um, just planting a little bit earlier. And then. No, just, just, harvest.
1: just yeah, harvesting. Just yeah, because harvest. the roots are all full sized for a month or two before yeah. we harvest. So.
2: But usually, you know, in the past, both in Massachusetts and here, we had, um, It was dry enough and warm enough that we could leave them out so they get frost. Either both, just to spread out our workload, we could leave more in the field. But we could also leave them to get frost and increase the flavor. But that's not worth it anymore. If it's Mm going to, you know, once it rains on October 10th, if if it's going to be wet from then after and then zero on November 4th or whatever it was. um, That's not risks worth taking.
1: They still taste good, but... Yeah, they still taste really good, but it's just not as—it's not
2: quite as crazy sweet. But yeah, this year we
1: got lucky because we left Parsons <coughs> and then it thawed, so we were able to get
2: them later on. But, but that was muddy and hard, and yeah. not really profitable. No. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, earlier, earlier, earlier fall, which finishing the fall this year, but and more doing. more electricity costs, you know, because mm-hmm. our root storage is can be fully cool by outside air if it drops below freezing at night, um, but. Harvesting earlier in October when it's warmer means we're going to use a lot more refrigeration, so it's an extra $500 plus for that month in um, extra electricity use. So we're just we're kind of now just assuming that's the cost of what we do, which it wasn't, didn't seem like it was a few years ago.
0: So to shift gears a little bit, um, I wanted to ask you also about social resilience to climate change like you said in the first year you had these softballs wild size hail mm-hmm. like I think that probably takes some sort of psychological toll or like you know to mm-hmm. decide that you're going to keep going after like a couple of really difficult years um has climate change and just maybe farming in general like changed the way that you connect with your community and fellow farmers or, like, on the other hand, has having a community of fellow farmers that you regularly check in with, I think you all in this community have kind of a unique situation where you're really well connected to each other, is that, in what ways has that helped you be adaptable?
2: It's great to have neighbors who are doing similar things. It's really nice. Yeah, I mean, We always kept in touch with, with other vegetable growers and friends near and far, and um, and so, and so we continue to do that. We're always comparing notes and figuring out what's mm-hmm. happening. But it's it's um, it's
1: even better to have neighbors and friends close. You, you know. <laughs>
2: and, yeah,
1: especially with the diseases that have come in, because we're comparing notes. Like, what did you try this year? And oh, I should goodness. try that next year. And because some, you know, this a lot of like black rat is just kind of new to all of us, and so we're just trying to figure out it as we go. Um, yeah.
2: And some of it's local, you know, it's really nice to have people nearby to compare notes with who got the same storms and missed the same storms that we did, Mm -hmm. you know, because if we compare (laughs) notes from central Minnesota or way southern Minnesota, like, we know they got storms that we got and vice versa, Mm -hmm. uh, or didn't get, sorry, Mm -hmm. and vice versa. So there's, so that comparison to help us know, well, maybe what we're doing with fertility is helping, or maybe what we're doing with... Spring probiotics is helping. It just helps with that experimentation.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, and with our CSA, you know, we've always kind of had that in place since we've been here, just because we have a CSA membership that comes to the farm Mm -hmm. and that lives close. So if we get like the softball size sale for instance everyone in Northfield also got that and they knew exactly what we were dealing with instead of just hearing about it and saying oh that would be terrible you know but they experienced it also they knew our you know so we it's there's there's more of a um, I guess a, you know a connection in that way because I we have shareholders that say oh it started raining and I immediately started thinking about you guys and you know so um, yeah that's a really wonderful connection that we've always had
0: mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. that hasn't
1: changed with climate change but
0: it's helpful
1: yeah that's yeah, one of the great things
2: about csa with relationships with our customers
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know both that um uh, i guess you call it emotional support um mm-hmm. and but literal financial support too you know with the concept of csa being that you know they're paying us no matter what the weather brings us even if softball side scale wipes out
1: so much mm-hmm. of that harvest yeah. No, they wiped out their tomatoes in their garden so they know they'll probably get
0: less tomatoes with us too. So okay. yeah. What advice would you have for like maybe a new farmer who's not super well connected or like I think we're seeing more field crop farmers like add some vegetables and mm-hmm. not have that community of vegetable growers? Um yeah, are there like places you would recommend connecting or organizations or just ways to kind of build that community if you don't have it already. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Going to conferences is one of the best ways to meet yeah. growers doing similar things. And you might end up meeting somebody three miles away that you didn't know. Um, mm-hmm. But also, you know, it's it's a strong community throughout the region too. You know, people we have things in common with hours and hours away. Um, some of our best advice and and. Figuring things out has come from people who are four or five hours away. And both and, and think more broadly about conferences too. You know, the Minnesota Fruit and Vegetable Conference, Growers Conference, doesn't have a lot of organic stuff, but there's a lot of great growers there and of people. It. And you're working it on it. And oh, good, it does this year. It,
0: there's a ton. Yeah, I'm okay. on the board, and we've been well, making well, a big effort to, to make most of the sessions
1: relevant to organic farmers or specifically about organic farming.
2: That's really cool to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so the conferences and then SFA um, chapters for local farmer networking.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And LSP LSP events and networks.
0: All right. Thank you for listening. I know that ended a little bit abruptly, but our conversation continued less formally. So that was kind of the most logical place to cut it off. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. The Some of the things that I found most insightful are just their really holistic approach to disease management and also thinking about ways to deal with water. I think in agriculture, we often um, just put a tile drain in when there's too much water on the landscape, and so I hope this inspired people to think a little bit more holistically about how we can manage water in ways that still support um, native plants insects, pollinators. So hopefully you heard a few ideas that you can use um, on your farm or in your garden. So as always, if you enjoyed this episode um, or if you didn't, please leave a review and you're always welcome to reach out with suggestions for topics um, or follow-up questions. So thanks for listening.